We're standing in the middle of a large sunny room in the student center of Iowa State University. It's a cold Sunday morning outside, but it's pretty warm in here because over 100 students are crammed into the room for a job fair. Iowa State University is located in the city of Ames. It's got a population of about 65,000 people and is right at the geographic center of the state of Iowa. But if you close your eyes and just listen to the voices all around us, we could just as easily be at a job fair out in the middle of China. <laughs> Today's event is put on for the nearly 2,000 Chinese students here at ISU. And the employers here don't exactly sound like your typical dream companies for Iowa undergrads. We've got Nantong 10th Construction Group Co., Jiabao New Fiber, and my personal favorite, Xiamen Golden Egret Special Alloy Company Limited. But hey, we're not the target audience for these recruiters. So we sit down with someone who is. So my name is Feng Shoupeng, and uh, I'm from China, Shandong, and uh, Zibo. But my hometown is Chifu, where Confucius was born. And how long have you been in Iowa for? Uh, 2015. It's four years right now. We spotted Feng Shuo because he's got the loudest laugh and the biggest personality in the room. Most of the Chinese students here are going from booth to booth, quietly handing over their resumes. But Feng Shuo is different. He's cracking jokes and telling stories with his friends. And they pushed me to drink three bottles of whiskey in India. Wow. Yeah, see, I passed out. <laughs> Almost passed away. Feng Shuo grew up attending the Shaolin Kung Fu Academy in China. He had to do 400 push-ups every day, and his teachers would kick him if he couldn't finish. For high school, he transferred to an international school where he learned English and applied to American colleges. But that didn't exactly prepare him for what he saw, when he stepped off the plane at Des Moines International Airport. It was so surprising to me, because in China we do have some stereotype. It's like uh, America, everywhere is like New York. And after I come here, I come to Des Moines, it's called Des Moines International Airport. After I go out, two flow, and there was a cornfield around, and one of the farmers was waving hand to me, and I literally asked the person, the actress, am I in America? <laughs> and she said, yeah, you are in America. Okay. Because there was another flight to fly to Brazil. I thought I just went to the wrong flight. Welcome to Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast, brought to you by Macro Polo, the think tank of the Paulson Institute in Chicago. I'm Matt Sheehan, a fellow at Macro Polo. I spent five years in China as a journalist, and now I'm back in the U.S. exploring the different ways that China impacts the lives of Americans across the country. And I'm Holly Hu, multimedia and research associate at Macro Polo. I was born and raised in China and came to the States as a high school student. And now I tell China stories through videos and podcasts. In Heartland Mainland, we're going to take you to meet the people, places, and industries connecting the People's Republic of China and the Hawkeye State. We'll introduce you to the Chinese students like Feng Shuo, filling up Iowa classrooms. You know, 17 years old boy, this is the first time I come out home alone. And the Iowa town that hosted China's future president when he was just a county official back in the 1980s. So if you see 100 Chinese people walking through downtown Muscatine, it's just like, wow, that's a lot, you know. The soybean farmers caught in the middle of a trade war. We could be paying for this for years to come and the Iowa factories hit hard by a wave of Chinese imports. Almost everybody lost their jobs. It was a very dark time. And of course, 
will take you inside of the Iowa caucuses. China. 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 To see how China is impacting the race to become the next U.S. president. Through these stories, we'll see what happens when you mix some Chinese grit with that famous Iowa nice. And how U.S.-China relations affect our lives in the Midwest, from our schools, farms, and factories, all the way on up to the White House. Back at the job fair, students like Feng Shui might be having a great time, but if we shift the focus from Ames, Iowa, over to Washington, D.C., things are a whole lot more tense. This comes as the Trump administration cracks down on China's involvement in U.S. intellectual property and as the trade war intensifies. As tensions between the U.S. and China have ratcheted up, Chinese students have become a political football between the countries. The Chinese government sometimes uses students as a means for industrial espionage and also sometimes pressures students abroad on political issues. Members of the Trump administration have called those students spies, and one of the president's closest advisors has proposed an outright ban on Chinese students coming to the U.S. The controversies around Chinese students came to a boiling point during an Oval Office showdown that pitted Trump advisor Stephen Miller against Terry Branstad, the two-time governor of Iowa and current ambassador to China. The result of that showdown would deeply impact the relationship between the world's two superpowers. So how did we get here? How did Iowa land at the center of a White House debate about U.S. national security? To answer these questions, we've got to turn back the clock to the financial crisis of 2008. Welcome to Heartland Mainland. To understand how the financial crisis affected public universities in Iowa and how that all fits in with the boom international student enrollment, we headed over to speak with folks at the financial offices at Iowa State University. My name is Roberta Johnson. I'm the director of student financial aid, and I have actually worked at Iowa State for 36 years. In her more than three decades in that office, Roberta has seen public funding for Iowa universities steadily decline. But when the financial crisis struck, that steady decline turned into a very steep one. It was tough for everyone. Uh, 2007, 8, 9, with the uh, recession that happened nationally, it caused a lot of states to have to pull back in because markets were bad, no, nobody's investments were making any money, so it just caused a crunch all across the board. And that's where international students came in. At most U.S. public universities, in-state residents paid discounted tuition rates, but that's not enough to cover the cost of their education. Students from outside of the state and from other countries pay full tuition. That's often two or even three times as much as in-state residents pay. I think you find across the nation that a lot of schools are talking about bringing in more non-resident students because of the tuition revenue that they generate, which is necessary to maybe not to subsidize their resident students, but just to help the bottom line of the institution. The result? A huge boom in Chinese enrollment at U.S. colleges and universities, both in Iowa and around the country. So from 2008 to 2018, the number of Chinese students in the U.S. more than quadrupled to over 350,000. That made China by far the biggest source of international students coming to the U.S. Just in Iowa alone, there are over 5,000 Chinese students. That's more Chinese students in Iowa than there are students from the next seven leading countries combined. We heard similar things when we visited the University of Iowa, located about 100 miles southeast of Iowa State University. That's where we met one professor who actually turned this slice of higher ed economics into a classroom lesson. When I start off my classes in the 
at the first class of the semester, I pass around a Ziploc bag with $94.50 in it. This is Ambassador Ronald McMullen. He served in the U.S. Foreign Service for over 25 years, and he's currently the ambassador in residence and a political science professor at the University of Iowa. I said each class period costs, if you're from Illinois or China and are paying full tuition, you are paying $94.50 for each class. So if you skip class, make it be worth to you $94.50. And I said, all of, all of you who are Iowa residents, um, don't raise your hands, but if you're a non-Iowa resident, resident, raise your hand. And so I said, okay, look around. Iowans, find somebody with their hand up and thank them after class for subsidizing your education. But for Ambassador McMullen, it's about more than just the finances. He's worked hard building programs that he hopes will help Chinese students integrate with their American classmates. That's something that's been a real challenge here in Iowa. In an hour, the old Capitol Mall that's right next to us is kind of a, there's a, a food court and a meeting area. I would encourage you to go over there at 12.15, and you will see a large number of Chinese students having lunch there. There will be almost no Chinese students sitting at a table, non-Chinese students or vice versa. It's very, very strictly segregated. So we did what he recommended. We walked across the street to the old Capitol Mall, where we sat down with a table of Chinese students. Can you say uh, how old you are and what, uh, what year student you are? Oh, okay, I'm, I'm 20 years old and I'm a junior. That's Chris Gu. Chris grew up in a city called Suzhou in southern China, and as he came toward the end of high school, he started applying to universities in the U.S. So many people ask me why I choose Iowa, so I always say I did not choose Iowa, Iowa choose me. <laughs> it's a joke, but, but actually Iowa is the, is the first university that gave me the offer, so I, I choose here, and basically uh, saying is, actually it's much cheaper than other universities, that's one of the most important reasons I came here. When Chris walked into his dorm room, his first contact with American life was his roommate, a full-time student, part-time DJ. As the first day we met each other, I was super surprised because he is a DJ. Okay. And he, he got two, <laughs> two super big speakers in our dorm. I, was, I, I never saw such a big, big speakers. So I was, I was super scared because I think he will play some DJ stuff at the midnight and I can't sleep. But actually he is, he is really a nice, nice people, a nice person. So uh, like uh, if I say I want to sleep and he will never play the, the DJ stuff. Chris and his Chinese friends at the University of Iowa got a lot of questions from their American classmates. Did you eat dogs? Do you have Subway in your country? Oh yeah, do you know Kung Fu? <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Some people believe all Asians know Kung Fu or all Asians eat dogs. That's Chris's friend, Katrina. She grew up in China, went to high school in Texas, and is now an undergrad at the University of Iowa. I would possibly be like, all, H all Asians are good at math, mm -hmm. like that, which I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, and negative can be like, um, rich, since you're studying abroad, right? But well, that's also positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holly, you came to the U.S. when you were starting high school, right? Yep, I was 14. Did you have to deal with these kind of questions and stereotypes and all that stuff? So I went to high school in Appleton, Wisconsin, a small town that I've never heard of until I booked my flight. After I got there, I got my fair share of questions like, do you eat dogs or are you guys poor? 
But I would say those questions are pretty harmless. They're curious about your country and they're willing to ask questions. So it's a good start. For me, at least, the worst obstacle to integration is not stereotypes. The worst is being ignored. My high school is all white, except for a handful of Chinese and Korean exchange students. So whenever a new Chinese kid arrived, the Americans just shrugged and said, here comes another one. It felt like they didn't really see me as me, but rather as just another exchange student from China. That's a whole other level of loneliness. Yeah, that's something that we heard talking with Chris and his friends at the old Capitol Mall, too. But we also learned that at the University of Iowa, some American students were reaching out to get to know their Chinese classmates. My name is Jeffrey Ding, and I was a student at the University of Iowa from 2012 to 2016. Jeffrey grew up in Iowa City and later went to college here. In his classes, he witnessed the same device that we saw at the old Capitol Mall. And I noticed in like business school classes, there was a pretty obvious split in terms of like group projects and seating arrangements where you would just see a lot of Chinese students sitting by each other and um, American students um, sitting by each other. So when a buddy program was created to pair up international and domestic students, Jeffrey signed up. And when Ambassador McMullen launched classes to teach international students about life in America, Jeff became an instructor. But the Chinese students were not necessarily eager to participate. The class was mandatory, and the curriculum was a bit dry. Lots of the peer mentors had come in really excited about reaching out to their Chinese classmates. But by the end of the program, many of them felt pretty disheartened about that. But then towards the end of his college years, Jeffrey gained a new and pretty personal perspective on what it's like to be an international student. Actually, senior year, I studied abroad in China um, at Peking University. And I went in being like, I'm not going to be like these Chinese international students who are coming to Iowa who don't, and who don't come to any of the clubs, don't engage on campus, who, are, you know, who only hang out amongst themselves. And then when I get to Beijing and I'm just drained by these classes because I'm operating in Chinese language and I can barely keep up and these students are already smarter than me, And then at the end of the day, I just want to go to the bars and speak English with my friends in my study abroad program. And I don't want to hang out with anyone from Beijing or, um, you know, who are domestic to China. And I didn't join any student organizations, not at all. But there were some Chinese students who managed to break out of that bubble. Back at the job fair in Ames, we noticed Feng Shuo, the student who attended the Kung Fu Academy, chatting up a really international group of friends. Since arriving at ISU, he's made friends from the U.S., from Pakistan, Malaysia, India, Saudi Arabia, just all over the place. Yeah, it seemed like every student at the job fair who wasn't Chinese was there because of Feng Shuo. That's, a, that's what's amazing about America, because in America, there is diversity. In China, we are so isolated. We have no idea about the world. That's why we study abroad in America. People from everywhere in the world, they are elite. They are smart. As they come to America, we share our idea, we share our experience together, and we success together. But when it comes time to graduate, every international student in the U.S. has to face the same question. What's next? Do you try to stay in the U.S., or do you head back home? So I'm still thinking about my plan. You know, young man like at my age, 
Confucian is the word that I would, I would describe all students. Should we stay here? Should we come to China? Should we come to somewhere else? We don't know. We are too young to decide, but we need to make a decision. For Feng Shuo and his classmates, this question of where they'll be next year feels like a really personal one. But as competition between the U.S. and China is heated up, the career paths of Chinese students is also a question that the two governments are taking an interest in. For decades, the Chinese government has offered incentives to overseas students who return to China and bring cutting-edge skills learned abroad back with them. But in recent years, as China has become a more formidable competitor in science and technology, some in the U.S. have begun to worry that American universities are training Chinese students who will return home and drive China's rise in these fields. Today, Chinese students are split about their post-graduation plans. According to a survey by Purdue University, around half of Chinese students hope to stay in the U.S. for a while, but they eventually want to return to China. 14% said they plan to return to China immediately, while 10% said they wanted to stay in the U.S. permanently. The fact that this is even a question for Chinese students shows how much things have changed. Just 15 years ago, the Chinese students who came to the U.S. were a totally different breed. They were usually Ph.D. students in science and engineering, and after graduating, the vast majority of them settled in the U.S. long term. One study found that 86% of Chinese Ph.D.s who graduated from American schools in the early 2000s were still living in the U.S. a full decade later. At the job fair, we met someone from that cohort. Uh, my name is Rickson. I, uh, uh, I'm 37 years old now. So I have been, uh, I came to the U.S. like six, 16 years ago wow. yeah, to pursue my Ph.D. degree. As we arrived at the job fair this morning, Rick was on stage delivering a lecture about the ins and outs of getting a coding job in Silicon Valley. It's something that Rick knows a thing or two about. After he got his Ph.D. in computer science at USC, he went to work for Google for about six years. There he helped the company to compress its data and even worked on its early self-driving cars. Eventually, Rick left Google to found his own startup, a company that helps other Chinese students find tech jobs in Silicon Valley. He sees major changes in how Chinese students today view their time studying in the U.S. compared to students from his generation. You know, it's quite different from people who came to the country like、uh, 20 years ago.、Yeah. At that time, there's a huge difference between, you know, Chinese and, and American job markets, right?、Mm-hmm. No matter from the, the compensation level. Or from the, you know, the the quality of the job, but today's Chinese students grew up in a different China, one that has its own high tech industries, trendy cities, and hipster lifestyles. Now I think it's not a, a like an American dream or something. It's just an option.、Mm. It's an option for the middle upper middle class of China Chinese family, so they have the choice to send the kids either to the United Kingdom, UK, or Australia, or Canada, or the US. It's just an option. Holly, you're part of this generation that Rick is talking about. Does what he's saying in there reflect the attitude of your classmates and your friends? Yeah, I think so. Nowadays, we're not coming here to, you know, flee from poverty back home. There are actually a lot of good opportunities for us back in China now. Instead, I think Chinese students kind of treat their time in the U.S. the same way Americans might feel about studying abroad, say in France or Spain. It's a time to explore a new place. To learn new language, stuff like that. Maybe they'll choose to stay. Maybe they'll head back home. But there's also been a big change in how the U.S. government views Chinese students. As China has become a more formidable country in terms of technology, 
there's been a lot more suspicion cast on Chinese students, especially those studying science and technology. Those suspicions really went public in February of 2018. That's when FBI Director Christopher Wray was testifying before the Senate, and the senator asked him about potential national security risks posed by Chinese students. This was what the FBI director had to say. I think in this setting, I would just say that the use of non-traditional collectors, especially in the academic setting, whether it's professors, scientists, students, um, we see in almost every uh, in almost every field office that the FBI has around the country. It's not just in major cities; it's in small ones as well. It's across basically every discipline. That phrase, non-traditional collectors, refers to when a government uses civilians, like normal students or professors, to carry out espionage. And that kind of espionage that Director Ray is talking about has actually happened at Iowa State University. Back in 2014, a Chinese graduate student there was arrested and convicted of trying to use his university credentials to buy military-grade sensors that he would then illegally export back to China. It's something that Director Ray was looking to raise the alarm about in academia. They're exploiting the very uh, open uh, research and development environment that we have, which we all uh, revere, but they're taking advantage of it. So one of the things we're trying to do is view the China threat as not just a whole of government threat, but a whole of society threat on their end. And I think it's going to take a whole of society response by us. But the phrasing that the FBI director used alarmed many people: a quote-unquote whole of society threat. It sounded like the FBI saw all Chinese students, immigrants, and maybe even Chinese Americans as potential spies. And that kind of language clearly found its way into President Trump's ear. According to Politico, during a closed-door dinner with CEOs, the president reportedly told them that quote, "almost every student that comes over to this country is a spy." All these tensions finally reached a boiling point in the spring of 2018. When two Trump advisers squared off in the Oval Office, one of those advisers was Stephen Miller, a hardline anti-immigration advisor to the president. On the other side was Terry Branstad, the former governor of Iowa and current ambassador to China. According to details of the meeting published in the Financial Times, Miller argued for an outright ban on visas for Chinese students in the U.S. He told Trump that the plan had two benefits. First off, it would combat the kind of spying or IP theft that the FBI was worried about. But Miller also argued that the move would be a way to get revenge against Ivy League universities. Professors at these universities had been highly critical of Trump, and Miller argued that cutting off the supply of Chinese students would hurt their bottom line. That was where Ambassador Branstad intervened. As the governor of Iowa, Branstad has seen firsthand what the financial crisis did to the budget of public universities. He also saw how crucial international students had been in filling those gaps. He argued that the real victims of Miller's plan would be public universities in states that had actually supported Trump, states like Iowa. Branstad's argument won Trump over. The total ban on Chinese students was shelved. President Trump reportedly looked at his ambassador and joked, "Not everyone can go to Harvard or Princeton, right, Terry?" But that debate in the Oval Office hasn't been the end of the story on Chinese students and visa restrictions. Instead of a full-on ban, 
the White House opted for more targeted restrictions. Chinese graduate students in certain technical fields are now subject to stricter background checks that can drag out for several months, if not longer. Those restrictions have stranded a number of students back in China waiting in visa limbo. And that reminded me of something Rick Sun told us back at the job fair in Ames. Gradually, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Chinese families and parents will actually be affected already, I think. So they okay, since it's so hard to stay in the US, why bother? So come back to China when you graduate. This phenomenon of large numbers of Chinese students coming to the US, it all started in small university towns like Ames and Iowa City. But as the impact of those local decisions went all the way up to the White House, the politics around this have gotten really tense. Still, when we zoom back in on the lives of individual Chinese students in places like Iowa, studying abroad in the U.S. can still be a really personal experience, one built on real connections between ordinary people. Yeah, while we were out recording these interviews, I discovered a crazy connection between myself and Feng Shuo. So you and I met Feng Shuo at the student job fair. And at the time, I didn't know that he and I had actually crossed paths years before. A month ago. Like we meet in the career fair, and he was like a dating interview to me. And so we had WeChat. I didn't recognize him. I was like, his face looked familiar to me, but I didn't recognize where did I meet him. Checked his like WeChat moment, his pulse, and I saw his father. Oh, I know his father. <laughs> yeah, this was crazy, and it needs a little bit of backstory. So my dad is a philosophy professor at Stanford, and about eight years ago, he was invited to give some lectures at a university in Shanghai. There, he met a young Chinese professor and invited him to come to Stanford as a visiting scholar. That professor turned out to be Feng Shuo's uncle, and in 2013, Feng Shuo and his whole family came out to visit him. My dad invited me to come out to lunch with them, and we all ate together at this little cafe on campus. After that, Feng Shuo and I wouldn't see each other again for six years, until the day that you and I showed up at the job fair in Ames. I was like, a, I was like, a, no way. I was like, I can't believe it. it's It's too crazy. I was like, no way. I was checking, like, is your father a professor in Stanford University? And he was like, yeah, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, I guess he, he just suspects that I was a, you know, FBI agent or something. <laughs> this connection between Feng Shuo, your dad, and you... It reminds me a lot of this Chinese word, yuanfen. It roughly translates to something like fate or destiny, and it's used to describe when two people were meant to meet each other. Yuan Feng Shuo definitely has some yuanfen. Yeah, yuanfen is a word you hear a lot in China, and it actually kind of feels right for describing the story of Chinese students in the U.S. and in Iowa specifically. I mean, you have these major forces all coming together to bring so many Chinese students to the U.S. in the past decade. China's rising middle class finally could afford to send their kids abroad for a better education. And at the same time, funding cuts at places like Iowa State University meant that U.S. colleges desperately needed the additional revenue from international student tuition. Now we've got similar forces driving a wedge between these countries. you got China's rising geopolitical power, issues with intellectual property theft, and America's reaction to all of that. And when that backlash almost led to a ban on Chinese students, it was Terry Branstad, the former governor of Iowa, who put a stop to it. And the yuanfen between Iowa and China goes a lot deeper than just students. In the next episode, we take you back to 1985. 
That was when a little-known Chinese government official came to Iowa to learn about corn processing. Twenty-seven years later, that same government official would return to Iowa. This time, as the most powerful man in China. For all of that and a whole lot more, tune in to the next episode of Heartland Mainland. Heartland Mainland is written and produced by Holly He and me, Matt Sheehan. It's brought to you by Macro Polo, think tank of the Paulson Institute. To explore more about this series and our research into Chinese politics, economics, and technology, find us online at macropolo.org. That's macro as in macroeconomics and polo as in marcopolo.org. We'd like to thank Ash and Spencer for the music used in Heartland Mainland. We'd like to thank our student fellow Shu Yingwen and our intern Wu Jie Julia Song for all their work on research and production. We'd also like to thank Swallow Yan for his help in Des Moines. I'm Matt Sheehan, and I'm Holly He, signing off from Macro Polo. The think tank of the Paulson Institute in Chicago.